Welcome to Man Thing Minute, all the Man Thing news you can use in a podcast. I'm Adam Tedderis, your host and giant size fan thing, and the pursuit of this program is to propagate the popularity of Marvel's misunderstood muck monster one issue, one episode, and one guest at a time. I am here once again. It's been a while, but I'm here with my co-host uh, and my, my, my co-producer, Sean Sadiq. Sean, how are you? Hey, Adam, how's it going? I just want to say, you know, yeah. I, I feel like I have a, we've developed a thing where I comment on the intro every time. You and, do. Uh, you know, in all sincerity, this time you're getting pretty smooth with it. It's getting really? Practice. I felt it's a getting little rehearsed. I felt like it was really like, hey, this is a podcast. I uh, well, I'm glad that you're recognizing that this is a wait, podcast. Wait, this is <laughs> it's a low is this bar a podcast. It's a very low barrier for entry. I'm I appreciate you saying that it, it came out smooth because I felt nervous when um I I don't know how much this is expressed or how much of this is clear or just internal. But when we have a, a, a guest of of tremendous contribution and value, I'm nervous to the do jitters these things. start coming out a little. Yeah, bit. yeah. I, don't I mean, want, I think I'm feeling it myself a little bit. Too. I feel like when I introduce my own show it's already begun to begun to damage my reputation (laughs) people are finding out more about me and is that such a good thing that's a podcast though yeah but i think i get your point though that like you voluntarily set yourself up for this uh fall from grace if you will (laughs) and to to cast that upon unknowing uh unsuspecting victims aka guests on the show is a different level of uh moral gray i think it's a terrific way that you coined that, Sean, that we can now in, uh, invite guests to join us, uh, letting them know that this, too, will be their fall from grace. <laughs> <laughs> this, this podcast is, is yours and my fall from grace, and, and let us fall together. Yeah, Sean, we've, uh, we, we haven't been together <laughs> for a minute. I know there's the illusion of the show and our continuity moving forward, but it has been a minute between recording um, you know, just tell me a little bit about what your man thing life has been up to. Have you been reading comics in the interim? Um, you know what? I would like to say I have. <laughs> uh, I, I have. I, so I did. All right. Step I back. knew you were going to. There was, I was I baiting did. you for this. There's no I, way you were going to say yes. Okay. Well, so here's the thing, right? For people listening that don't know me or uh, Adam and my dynamic, I am a huge nerd. Adam, you can attest I have my nerd credentials mm-hmm. for sure. Mm-hmm. You know, born and bred, straight nerd, indoor kid. Uh, my partner has recently dubbed the term indoorsy for how she describes my lifestyle. That's right. Um, <laughs> that being said, comics were never really on my radar. Um, and I think a big part of us becoming better friends and me getting to, you know, your hobbies, mine, yours, yours, mine. Wow, I can't talk. Uh, is that I've. I'm just trying to tiptoe my way into the kiddie pool of comics. Mm-hmm. And to that end, uh, I did go to a comic shop in 
Maniunk. Um, help me with the name. It's something Heroes. Do you, do you know that no, one? I don't know. Maniunk uh, Heroes. Something Heroes <laughs> in Maniunk. It was a great shop. Uh, people there were wonderful, super helpful. Mm-hmm. And I picked up the first issue of Adventure Zone. Now, I'll be at another podcast that I've already listened to and cool. I know the story of, but uh-huh. felt like a little safe segue into my own you know non-homework reading for this podcast i think that's cool they i mean shout out to you and also i've defiled you so this is great <laughs> we all fall together <laughs> we, all, we all fall together and this party of two is about to become a party of three we're all going to fall together it's a trust fall episode on man thing minute <laughs> i want to introduce our guest today who is a writer and Japanese language translator who's responsible for localizing great works like Gengora Tagami's My Brother's Husband, uh, Aranzi Aranzo's Aranzi Machine Gun series, and Bat Manga, The Secret History of Batman in Japan. She's also the executive director of Asian Arts Initiative here in Philadelphia, and most recently, the Emmy Award-winning host wow. of WHYY's Movers and Makers. Anne Ishii is in the house. How are you, Anne? I am so good, Adam, after that introduction. I, I'm with Shaw. That was the most introductory introduction. I've we are heard. truly in a podcast. <laughs> a lot of people have said that the first three minutes of this podcast are the sterling, you know, in, in uh, a portion of the show, and it just kind of goes down from there. Well, so we got to get into the muck, you know. Yeah, we got. We do need to get into the muck, but um, I'm I'm glad that you like the introduction. It was really hard for me to narrow down. Mm. ways to describe you because you are indescribable you've done so much you've made so much you're remarkable i've left so much out of the introduction good yeah less is more and likewise i mean adam you're you know i can't hold a candle to your list of performance accomplishments and you know um flirt vonnegut of course (laughs) Are, are we all are we allowed to talk about them, you, just, or, uh, you just unmasked his secret identity. It's right to the it's, world. This my my lucha libre <laughs> identity has been revealed. Uh-oh. Yeah, we can no, we can talk, no. It's no uh oh. We can talk uh-oh. about we can talk about him. <laughs> we can talk about the flirt in the room. But the, I think this is the inaugural uh, episode where where that identity has has been revealed. Yeah. Uh, and everyone um, was wondering who Flirt Vonnegut's true identity was. <laughs> yeah, at the end, at the end of every episode of Man Thing Minute, an unrelated project, people are like, "Gotta know who this guy is." <laughs> <laughs> this shadowy figure. Um, but Anne, I'm glad you brought it up because this is this is the second time that I have roped you into doing something mm. uh, bizarre, and you've taken me up on it. A lot of people want a little of your time. And it is a privilege that you would spend any of it with me. So I appreciate you. Thanks. No, of course. I like our banter. You're a fun guy. Uh, I've roped you into things, certainly. Yes. You you co-hosted our annual benefit this year. And, um, I mean, we've worked together at Black Star Live. Yeah. I mean, you know, we got a thing going here. I think You're... we should get rid of Sean, if anything. I'm yeah. completely extraneous at this point. I don't even know why yeah. I'm here. <laughs> I'm just kind of fanning on both ends. I was just going to say, and I, uh, one of my favorite, speaking of performance space, since we've cracked into that uh, secrecy, you know, underbelly of our lives, um, when you came and did um, our show, Fantasy Basement, mm-hmm. uh, one of my favorite shows ever when you were a guest on that. And actually, <laughs> some yeah. of my friends whom are not even part of that scene, don't really go to shows that much, are now not Fantasy Basement 
fans. They never came to another one, but huge Annie <laughs> and Asian fans. And uh, well, tell me about your, you know, told me about your nomination and have like listened to your show. And I'm like, wow, I'm glad I <laughs> added something to your life. It was it had nothing to do with me, but uh, yeah. So <laughs> just glad to have you on the podcast because at the very least, some of my friends will finally start to pay attention. Yeah, I, those friends sound awesome. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, who among us does not have the vivid memory of a stage at Frankie Bradley's crowded with anime fans in a competition to yell like Dragon Ball Z? <laughs> Annie, she encouraging all of them by screaming in the corner as well. Oh. Really good stuff. That was really awesome. good stuff. That was a lot of fun. Um, and we're here to talk about, uh, you know, something different from anime. You were on our anime show, Fantasy Basement, mm -hmm. which is a live geek culture, uh, kind of a, a comedy talk show. And uh, you were here on a, a different program. It's Man Thing Minute. We're talking about a very singular subject, which is the, the macabre man thing, my favorite Marvel muck monster. And that leads me to ask you, what is your experience, if you have some, with comic books as a medium? Yeah, um, I mean, longtime fan, first time commentator. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, you know, um, I think the comics that I've enjoyed. Just, I should start with. I think I started with manga. Probably, <clears throat> comics have always been part of my, you know, library. But um, I think I didn't really get into American comics until maybe college, and then it was like you know, Sandman or, um, yeah, yeah. oh shoot. What's the one with Fiona Staple? Um, or saga, like, maybe? yeah, Saga, right. Yeah. Um, yeah, just maybe stuff that's more on the fringe, right? Like didn't really get into superhero until Chip Kid told me to get into Batman mm -hmm. and, um, not even Batman really dark Knight. So that's, you know, and then mostly, these days I'm reading graphic novels, like you, Sean said, indoorsy, like indoorsy comics. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds comfy. That sounds right up my alley. Give me some recommendations. Love yeah. Um, I also wanted to mention, I think the comic book that I had the most fun translating or manga really is um, not a lot of people know I did this Detroit Metal City. It's like 10 or 11 volumes. Mm -hmm. It's, are we allowed to swear? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, okay, it's fucking. We're not, so... but we're not allowed to swear. But you are. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's a, it's a weird. It's because my mom's right listening. That's really. Well, it's it really is. funny because Sean was saying earlier, "Motherfucking Detroit Metal City <laughs> no. is the fucking best." Mom, I'm sorry. Fucking... Yeah, that's right. You came in here hot. I said, "Welcome to the Man Thing Minute," and Sean just says, "Ass." And yeah. I was like, Whoa. <laughs> Hold on. I think he dropped the C bomb at some. I'm point. still getting con getting context down is is important. You, you learn the words, you don't really know how they're used yet. You know that's where that's the phase I'm in. By so, the way, people can't see this because it's a podcast. But Adam's wearing a mannequin pussy shirt, but the yeah. way the frame cuts out, he looks like it says mannequin bussy. <laughs> Well, okay, so now is also you've revealed my other identity. I've started it. <laughs> I started a new band. Um, I love Mannequin Pussy. I love what they're they're getting into. Love what they're all about. But it's time. It's time for Mannequin Pussy ready. to take the world. <laughs> 
It could happen. I mean, I watch, you know, b- being in the drag and queer community, I feel yeah. like, you know, it's only a matter of time until... You would read... Mannequin Pussy, the the band themselves, it would be such a glow up if they have received the, like, drag parody treatment, oh, right? Oh, totally. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, totally. Oh, shit. I should make a man thing... Pu- no. Man, no. man thing can pussy? No. I don't think... <laughs> don't sexualize him, Adam. Ugh. <laughs> yeah. oh. No, I can't. But, but I want to know more about Detroit Metal City. Uh, Detroit Metal City, what was that all about, and how did you find that? Wakasugi Kiminori is the creator of Detroit Metal City, and it's about this uh, feckless indie, you know, navel-gazing, soft boy guy. speaking our language. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Named Sean, who uh, wants to succeed so badly as an indie rocker and has this, like, ridiculous triacly you know like he has this whole sidewalk situation but for better for worse his alter ego uh is lord krauser the uh lead singer in a band called detroit metal city yeah and it's like (laughs) the most heinous disgusting dark offensive like just brutal black metal band ever and mm-hmm. they get all dressed up. It's sort of like a combination of Kiss and Guar, and then like everybody from like Anal Cunt to Kralis just mixed up into one band. Yeah. And yeah. It, this alter ego, it just, it's almost like a split personality. He turns into him when he's upset, and he gets oh. upset very easily because he's so emo. So, <laughs> well, this is that that's so interesting because obvious reverberations. Uh, is Sanrio maybe cribbed to this idea with Agretsuko? Yes, yeah, well, exactly. That's literally, yes, that's the what's the word template or the you know, that is it. Mm. It's really good. And, um, in each episode or in each um book, there's you know. There's this whole conflict arc with like a competitive band, or they finally meet the the metal gods of Sweden, or like the metal <laughs> gods of the U.S. They go to Fuji Rock, and like horrible things happen. It's wow. it's really great. It's so offensive. It would never. <laughs> it's really. I, I mean, this is another reason why people don't know that I translate it because it's it's a lot of horrific jokes that definitely would not pass today. But yeah. When was it written? If you in the early aughts. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It it looks like maybe there's an anime and a manga as well. Yes, uh, the anime so. is also very good, and their manager is even more disgusting than you know the band. It's really funny. That is amazing. So uh, you know you have a background in in manga specifically. In here we are talking about an American comic book today, a mm-hmm. comic born from the seventies. Uh, I wonder if you have any uh, thoughts or guidance on dis- deciphering the differences or commonalities between American comics and manga and Japanese comics. Yeah, I think somebody's made a really good point. Um, you know, in Japan, I think. I, I think of it as business, right? So the franchises are all trying to kind of reinvent around themes. And here we've become really obsessed with characters. Mm. So not that character obsession doesn't also happen in Japanese media, but it's like the world is the thing that people get really excited about. And um, video games are changing that a little bit, but here it's really like the characters, you know, 
Um, so I think that's kind of interesting. Um, also, just like the fact that there's no kawaii culture in the U.S. There's mm. very little. Mm. Uh, this is neither a good or bad, just a reality that cuteness, adorability, like men especially are not supposed to be cute. Mm -hmm. In Japanese comics, there has to be cute or it mm -hmm. will fail. Like mm -hmm. it just won't connect. So I think that's in a nutshell what I've seen. The uh, Aranzi machine gun series uh, yeah. stands out in my mind as an example of, of you know, something that blends the kawaii uh, and, yeah. and a, a lot of other elements at the same time. And to your point, you know, we just mentioned Sanrio. Yeah. Sanrio has found foothold in the com a community in the in the West in in a lot of girls who love Hello Kitty and mm -hmm. and over time I wonder if this has changed somewhat in the West that we've become more accepting of the possibility for men in all genders to be into this sort of thing because we have characters who are really popular like Gudetama, mm -hmm. the, the little lazy egg, Agretsuko mm -hmm. has been it's like three or four seasons on Netflix which is a testament to something yeah. Well, I think of things like Steven Universe too. Oh, yeah. Just like really Steven great example Universe. of adorable and heroic, right? Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, I think for sure that's changing. Well, that's really cool. I think uh, the the delineation between uh, comics in the West seem to be very into character-driven stuff, and that makes sense. We're we're all about franchises. If you like Black Panther, you buy the comics, you buy the merch, you see the movie. Uh, whereas uh, manga and and stories uh, coming from Japan are more focused on themes. I wonder, maybe we have struck an interesting center Venn diagram with the man thing because <laughs> the story we read today is one that could only be in a Man-Thing comic. Mm. However, it is very much not about the Man-Thing. And the, the character of the Man-Thing, as we have discussed often on this show, is usually used simply as a lens, as a vessel, to see other themes explored, mm. human behavior and, and social discourse at the time. So I wonder if, I wonder if we've accidentally engineered a combination. The East and West come together. It really had to happen with Man Thing. Yeah. He was the only, he was the key missing piece to bridge any cultural gap. Yeah. This is what people have been saying. That's right. Yeah. I, I definitely saw something in a JSTOR article about the, yeah, the Japanese influence on. Mar no, honestly though, it, there's something. Very <laughs> Look, there are listeners who are she like, tried. "I would yeah. love the link. Let me let me get the link to this article that you're talking about because I believe you." I think you should write that article. Yeah. <laughs> well, Foucault said, "Just kidding. I'm not doing that." Um, <laughs> but it's it. Since you mentioned it, I hadn't thought of it that way. But I mean, it feels super new wavy, like Japanese new wave, especially the existential sort of am I imagining things or is this real um that's super duper like i'm gonna say one name abe kobo is a writer that did a lot of that with things like the box man and um post-war japan was all about like oh especially since the swamp also invokes the pacific war i don't mm. know if we really wanted to go there i mean that's, we do. That is there. Yes. We really do yeah. want to go there. I think this is probably a, a basic reference at this point. Again, because of the uh, uh, the popular, the increased popularity of of manga here in America. But I I can see 
little tiny glimpses of Junji Ito. Oh, in, totally. In the weird horror atmosphere of a comic like the one that we read today. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I do want to get directly into it. So we should introduce the comic that we were reading today. Of course, you know, if you were listening to Man Thing Minute, every episode, Sean and I bring on a guest and we, we have that guest join us in reading one individual issue, one appearance of the Man Thing. And today we read Man Thing number 12. This was published in September 1974. It was written by our guy, the staple, Steve Gerber. Uh, it was drawn by John Buscema and Klaus Janssen. And uh, this is a, an interesting little tidbit, but the colors, uh, the colorist on this book is a woman named Glennis Ween. And that is notable, one, because dope name, Glennis. I only know one. <laughs> And two, uh, Glynis Ween at the time was married to a man named Len Ween. And uh, if you've been listening to the show for a minute, you may know that Len Ween is the co-creator of Swamp Thing. So, oh, wow. Yeah. The, so drama. the competition. <clears throat> now, there's no real competition because these guys actually traded and worked on each other's books in different capacities. Uh, but I love the romantic notion, the drama, that mm-hmm. the, the creator of the uh, opposite character swamp thing the more popular character <laughs> the competitor his wife worked on the other side on the other book and a little bit uh, of a romeo and juliet situation isn't it lovely wow yeah. i'm excited for the movie personally That's exploring these power move yeah yeah so uh shout out to glennis ween you did a really weird murky job on this this is a, a, <laughs> a pretty gross weird book and you nailed it and if you would do us the favor yeah what happens in the comic titled Song Cry of the Living Dead Man? By the way, great metal metal album name if you need yeah. one. Yeah. I can't, yeah. Can't you see that in Detroit, Metal City? Oh, like, yeah. Song Cry of the Living Dead Man? Absolutely. Phenomenal. Talk about synthesis. It sounds like the kind of a song that both the, you know, the emo soft boy and the death they come together. Come, they finally yeah. melded, right? <laughs> they blended, finally became one. We get our cake and, and eat it too because on the cover, it says the title is Death Cry of a <gasps> Dead Man. Whoa. And in the book itself, the title is Song Cry of the Living Dead mm. Man. And I, to me, it's like that, um, uh, you know, the person who wrote the article didn't write the headline. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right? <But> we <laughs> yeah. often know this. And the editor is just like, I don't fucking know. <laughs> <laughs> I think Death Cry, though, is a little bit too macabre. I like Song Cry of the Living Dead Man. It's a little bit more balanced. You know, you got mm. you got to have a little bit of the optimism, a little bit of the sad boy, you know. Very yeah. sad anyway. boy. Very, Very sad, sad boy. boy. So, yeah, yeah, what's what's going on in this comic? Um, I want to preface with, again, I went into this totally uh, uninitiated. So mm-hmm. just Love with it. zero knowledge of, I, I, I actually, all I knew is, the man thinks swamp think dyad because mm-hmm. adam had told me that um <laughs> i can't believe he would bring that up you uh, saying that out loud is like he- someone hearing their own voice for the first time and realizing <laughs> that, uh, i sound like that that's what i do all the time <laughs> so swamp thing jesus the, <laughs> the monster um is looking into a mansion, an asylum on the edge of the swamp, which I already think is kind of hilarious. <laughs> and it looks like an English estate or something, very yeah. opulent. And it sounds like he's looking for somebody upon whom to take 
vengeance or some kind of he needs some kind of vindication it needs some kind of vindication mm-hmm. it, and then inside the house he sees a guy named Brian, which I don't know why it's so funny to me. Brian Lazarus. Yeah, everybody knows Brian. You know Brian. His brother Brandon fixed my car last week. So yeah. uh, Brian. Of course, the, you know, the last name is packing the whole literary punch, right? His last name is Lazarus. Right, right. on the right. nose. It's right. like Jesus Christ's brother Nigel. <laughs> <laughs> Man thing, or better known as Nick. <laughs> <laughs> so Brian is having some kind of psychotic episode. He's trying to write something down before he loses it, which I really, really empathized with as a writer. But then it appears he's then attacked by actual people. Who, you know, he's under attack. They all want something from him sounded mostly like it was everything from like paying the parking ticket to the gas meter to whatever and um the thing sees that happening and wants to protect him because he knows what it's like to be attacked and prodded and demanded of pulls him punches through or rips through a gate and punches in and it turns out these are all ghosts or something apparitions pulls pulls brian out of the house um and then this part, the transition's kind of weird. Brian stumbles out of the swamp, and then we're at a hotel. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it, yep. this is exactly how it happens. <laughs> yeah, and um, I just want to note, I loved how the narrating syntax is very, um, you know, again, it feels like English, kind of like industrial fiction it's almost like trying to be dickensian it's like mm-hmm. and the you know and thence brian stumbled to the cozy corner motel <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they yeah. can't they can't follow through the whole way yeah. <laughs> brian lazarus in the cozy corner hotel yeah but where it's, it's like, only 8.99 a night also i just want to quickly interject that and has already elevated this podcast to higher levels than we've ever seen by just using the term Dickensian. It's great. <laughs> we, we're know, not that. We're not good enough for that. Just we are good. We enough appreciate it. I think. See, I I disagree, Sean. I think it is time. I think that it is time for us to elevate above the muck and the mire because there there's something happening. There's a a high art attempt happening here. Oh yeah, uh, and I super uh, appreciate. I never would have picked that up myself, but. You saying but, that it totally clocks, and I I definitely appreciate somebody with uh you know an actual background in in literature to to educate it me a little bit. Truly, sounds like the it's like the writer wants you to know that the narrator is capable of being erudite mm-hmm. because the dialogue you're about to hear is so stupid. You know, it's <laughs> yeah, like yeah, valid, it's valid. like you know, um, just want you to know I'm not a dickhead. Like, and then. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, it, it, just to, to like dig into that too, uh, comics at the time, right? We have Spider-Man swinging around and smacking mm-hmm. masked uh, uh, nefarious villains. We have the thing whose whole thing is just literally it's clobber in time, right? He just punches yeah. people. And, and here in the pages of the man thing, can't you kind of see this as a really weird alt game in the Yes. 
adventure oh. because the you know even Gaiman in the early days of the Sandman for for all of its uh, um, for all of the affection people have toward it it was a lot of a young man speaking so much higher above he, you know his vocabulary and experience yeah. and to me I feel like you know Brian Lazarus himself is basically that guy he's mm-hmm. like a a this tortured artist who needs to make sure that you know how oh, smart totally. he is. Oh, yeah. Yes, yes. And and therefore the narrator of this book is is doing the same, sort of mimicking yes. the same. Um, I want to I want to drill down on something that you said uh, you empathized with, which is uh, the writing process and fearing that if you don't write it down now, you will forget it. Um, mm-hmm. What what was it about that element that that spoke to you? I uh, I think all writers can empathize with the the uh, finishing anxiety that's like a real problem it's why writer's block happens it's why writers are so tortured even though the work itself is not at, you know physically at least challenging whatsoever yeah and most people know that they are good writers and just have an incredibly hard time when it comes from their own pen uh you know that's why so many people become writers of other stories or, you know, uh, authoring, I should say, is really hard. Like, writing is easy, but authoring is really hard. And it's just a whole journey with your ego, which this is, this whole, I keep wanting to call it episode issue. This this whole book was just that struggle, that existential struggle. And I really, really get it, because it's, I like the way that it really focused on the writing and listening to voices and which ones to filter out, which ones to filter in. Mm -hmm. That's all part of, you know, personal growth anyway. But for writers, it's so hard to explain why that hurts, but Mm -hmm. it does. And in this version, there's a physical manifestation of it that only man thing can see. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, I never finished how this ends, but there's at the hotel motel, there's a singer who needs to get to her gig after having just been rescued from a kidnapping. <laughs> yeah. So it's like a little stuff. jarring. Yeah. Just... That's comics. <laughs> I still got to hit my show. And the guy who rescued her has to run off for some reason. Like he can't stick around, even though it's clear she's asking him to stick around. He's a radio and, DJ. He's got. Oh right, you know, That's yeah. What he's got to go on his show at midnight. Uh huh. Very important slot. I know mm-hmm. how important radio <laughs> was in 1974. <laughs> <laughs> the motel owner doesn't like him. She goes out and runs into Brian Lazarus, and he mm-hmm. starts saying things, and then shoves this piece of paper at her. And she's like, you actually think all these things? Like, whatever he wrote <laughs> was profound. Mm-hmm. So, and that, that thing that he wrote is the titular song cry of the living dead man. So in this case, the name of this issue is also the name of the piece that he is tortured by. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's an interesting... It's an interesting piece in this comic was rare as the occasion where suddenly we have a break in the comic action, the panel to panel action. And we have what amounts to be a novella, you know, like long form literature in the middle of the page. We have the song Cry of the Living Dead Man. What did we make of that excerpt? Uh, Well, I'm having a fugue state trying to remember. Maybe that's the 
Maybe that's the effect of it. It says, Song Cry of the Living Dead Man by Brian, comma, mm-hmm. because I was slash am. And me, immediately, wow. I remembered writing maybe that same byline when I was in eighth grade, creative <laughs> writing class. You know, I'm like, look, I have yeah. to write this poem about the band Corn because I am. <laughs> slash was. <laughs> slash, slash was. I am yeah. slash was the corn. And uh, you know we have a panel that is associated with the the uh, the excerpt itself. I'm I, I call it an excerpt. I'm not sure if this is the completed piece. I assume it's not because Brian is haunted by the the notion of not being able to finish this. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, we have a panel that shows Brian waking up in in fear. There's a clock that is uh, like plunging an arrow yep. through one of the hands of the clock through his skull. He's driving mm-hmm. to work. He's typing in a, a very Shining-esque, uh, you know, typewriter scene where it's just a piece of paper that's printed out and says lies, lies, lies over and mm-hmm. over. There is an allusion to Tom Sawyer and whitewashing Jim. Mm-hmm. A little unclear. And then we have, you know, Brian in a an open grave, his own grave, maybe clinging to the ground, trying to crawl out of it or prevent himself from being buried alive while a man in a suit is handing him an invoice. So that that's what associates with the the long form piece itself, the song cry itself. And it, it's it's very Dadaist. It's yeah. really absurd. It's it's very much about like the the conflict between art and uh, commerce. I, mm-hmm. I imagine you know being haunted by all of the yeah. the wills and needs and desires of the world around you while you are trying desperately to depict the truth. Uh, so yeah, lots yeah. Of, yeah lots all of, of these overtones. things. Lots. You I was just gonna say. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I just literally, this is all coming back. It's flooding back, but I, I just, it's like my brainy lighted it. And I think that's, <laughs> it speaks to where I am. A as trauma a response, maybe? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'm like, la, 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 la. And just, <laughs> I wanted to get to the cozy corner motel real fast. <laughs> I thought just everyone was generally happy all the time. <laughs> just a little a kidnapping show. and, you know, that's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, mild kidnapping. But this, so, you know, I, I know this really, this resonates with me in a really big way. And a very large reason as to why I've chose this issue is because you, a a writer, a creator, and also somebody who uh, straddles between the creative expression and needing to work in, in spaces of commerce with your nonprofit, with AAI, I think the demands of the world and what needs to be done to survive yeah, especially in a five hundred one c three and nine nonprofit, yeah. as as well as the the, uh, the the demand of your soul of your nature to write and to you know depict truth in the words of Brian Lazarus <laughs> that the central detention there feels like that's what we're exploring as a theme in this issue. Is that totally. am I am I on the mark here? Yeah, you nailed it. And actually, um, it's funny that the mundanity of paying the bills would be so torturous right and it's sort of um i immediately hear this you know i'm also just the child of immigrants or whatever in that i'm like oh come on just everybody has to pay the bills why are you complaining about this but uh i think you nailed it and i you know it's funny i just um i gave a little talk at upenn to a group of MFA students on just sort of like a career pep talk, what you can do with your degree. And Mm -hmm. 
overarchingly, the questions are like, how do I maintain artistic integrity while also just living in the world? Because mm-hmm. it's going to require getting a day job. It's going to require compromise. And um, it's something I struggle with myself, but I realized uh, there isn't, I don't think I know an artist at any level of success who doesn't feel that torture. Mm -hmm. And that's just the, that's a responsibility of somebody interrogating an ego at all. So like, if it didn't matter, then it wouldn't bother you, right? But Mm -hmm. it's Mm -hmm. just um, self-discovery and self-awareness are really hard. And it, it is worthwhile. And the other way I talk about art and art practices, people doing it can't not do it. Like it's not, Mm -hmm. it doesn't even have to be altruistic. It's an innate calling. And that Mm -hmm. doesn't mean everybody's talented, but it's just, I don't know anybody who does it, who, who can control it. They just have to. So maybe it is monstrous. The other thing is where I really got it was, is it, he's talking to the singer and he says like, everything's, music started to sound like noise yeah he's thinking about the beatles album yeah Mm -hmm. oh my god i screenshot that panel because it's so good um and he's like and then everything was noise and i think um just navigating reality while interpreting it and finding your position in it and simultaneously trying to perform an ego death to become an ultimate artist everybody writing i think is trying to get to a place where they're like a vessel or a channel Mm -hmm. um and not necessarily the voice of god but you can't do that without kind of knowing what god is right so Mm -hmm. that's that's where i ended up with that it's that was really pretty profound actually yeah this character brian lazarus is being tortured by not just this specific piece the song cry Mm -hmm. uh, but just seemingly that the concept of you know being a a complete artist while also needing to manage to live a life and in all of the expectations from people who are not artists and do not Mm -hmm. have that innate pull to create to write to make because most of the world is governed by people who are not those types Mm -hmm. and um you know that is uh the story as as we are experiencing uh uh, brian's trauma uh, the man thing plays in because the man thing you know in um cartoons where there's a good smelling pie or cheese and Mm -hmm. there's like scent lines coming off of it that's the man thing with strong emotions Mm. so the man thing is is captivated attracted by strong emotions all strong emotions for the most part has curiosity toward Mm. them and just needs to observe them Mm -hmm. which means he is a vessel for these uh the these moments of humans behaving in a certain way you know and these are depictions of feelings and thoughts and uh, sentiments in the 1970s, in 1974. Um, But the man thing is repelled by or enraged by negativity and specifically fear. Mm. And so, you know, for the most part, he's just watching Brian Lazarus until Lazarus comes to and becomes afraid and is burnt by the touch of the man thing. And uh, and then in the end of this, you know, Brian finds Sybil. This is the the woman who has yes. been having the longest night ever, and <laughs> was just trying to settle down at the cozy corner motel, and uh, is <laughs> listening to the stark raving Brian Lazarus talk about his piece. And I think it is within the the context of a comic, it's very fast. These things uh, uh, conclude and resolve really quickly, but 
we have, I think, a touching moment of people seeing each other for their pain. Mm -hmm. Specifically, Sybil is curious about what's going on with this man. So she's clearly not a woman, a normal woman in the in the United States. She saw (laughs) an insane man in the streets and said, let me come help you. Yeah, we should invite this person in and see what his deal is. But after Brian really (laughs) loses it and melts down in in the motel room. He asks her, this is this is the part that I took a photo of. He asks, well, what about you? Do you understand? And she says, no. Mm. I don't, not really, but that doesn't mean I won't try. Mm. And I felt like a really easy way out is for her to say, yeah, I totally get what's yeah. going on with you. <laughs> but she says no, and it, it, it makes me think of, uh, I think a better definition of empathy is not knowing what they're going through, but caring deeply anyway. Yeah, you know, and and I I feel like the conclusion of this story then is this guy having a meltdown and a woman who doesn't quite understand, and the two of them having a human connection. Mm, and the, ultimately, isn't that the tragedy of the character of the man thing? He can't have these connections. Mm. He is allured by these feelings, the the strength of the feelings, but he can never. He's not going to have a hug from anybody. You know, mm. it's just it's just not going to happen. So he just goes and shambles back into his swamp. Um, mm. And that's the plot of the comic. But, you know, both of you uh, here are artists. Both of you are creators. Uh, both of you, I think, have the tension of making things that are meaningful to you and also clocking in and yeah. whatever that means for you. I'm so glad you mentioned that panel uh, of the sort of exchange between, between Brian and Sybil. I, that struck me as such a amazingly modern take on human psychology and mental health and how we should deal with people in our lives struggling. Because mm-hmm. like you said, she she took an approach of not belittling his beliefs, but not also not co-opting them in a way and not saying, hey, yeah, I go through struggles too. And yeah, we all, we all get sad sometimes. And like, I get it. Uh, she was very open-minded and 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 very modern in her approach and i was just like that panel alone there's obviously some areas that this comic shows its age but that (laughs) seems like it could have been ripped out from something produced in 2022 Mm. something good produced in 2022 Mm. so that was probably hansen that's a line directly (laughs) from dear evan hansen dear evan hansen thing (laughs) yeah there you go just add thing and it works Yeah, yeah every time (laughs) <laughs> this is my like fucked up Weird Al universe that I live in, where everything is a, a Man Thing centered parody of everything else. Well, the great thing about Man Thing is it takes very little effort in adapting it. Uh, you just have to have him somewhere in the background behind some bushes watching whatever's going on in the foreground, and yeah. then it's a Man Thing version. He is he is an emotional voyeur. Mm-hmm. He is an emotional voyeur. And there's something very weird and bizarre and unsettling about that. But there's also something just cartoonishly funny about that, too, of, mm. you know, always in the background. Look in every tree and every bush behind, you know, every little corner of the panel to see him yeah. watching somebody else have the worst day of their life. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like it's a metaphor. That, well, obviously, it's a metaphor, but... <clears throat> um. I keep thinking about the date of publication. So this would have been a time when men were possibly having a hard time, American men, uh, um, explaining trauma. Mm. So I guess some of this is magical thinking, right? Well, if somebody would just tell me that they'd be willing to listen, then I'd be more willing to say it. Mm. And I Mm. think it's the like, I don't know how to say things if I don't have an interlocutor, but, um, I think that's my biggest struggle with 
negotiating like between art career versus career career is um I, I I'm somebody who benefits highly from external validation and uh not just benefit kind of requires it mm -hmm. to function mm -hmm. and I and I know we all do but I feel like I might need an inordinate amount of it and so where I get that whether it is media or work or supporting staff or supporting artists uh it's uh it's it's part of how I my engine runs which I need in order for me to then accept my solitude to create this very isolating work and to just sit in the isolating work um I need both of the things and then the tension and the crises frankly happen when one or the other when I can't find that equilibrium so when not enough people are validating my art or when uh, the supporting work becomes too isolating. Um, mm -hmm. my One of my biggest conflicts with work and with the nature of my work is when I can't share what's happening because there's a lot about it, which is just discretion. And um, what I mean specifically is, you know, the work basically involves holding holding hands with artists, wiping their tears, patting them on the back, uplifting other people. And um, that's a very intimate experience. Mm. Um, if I can't share it, it just, it doesn't really, I don't know, it, it's like, uh, it doesn't metabolize or something, you know? There's definitely in art and in expression and, and gaining validation from from an audience or, or from uh, somebody consuming your work, there's this sort of pressure valve the way I describe mm -hmm. it is like uh, there's a moment of catharsis when you finally put it out there and it's scary and you're you know you're going to get people you know giving their opinions on it but until that moment it feels like there's just this sort of unnamed sensation of buildup where you're mm -hmm. like oh, I just need to you know I need to hear like I've been working on this thing I've been killing myself over it for so many weeks or however many periods of time I've been working on it I just want that human connection to interact with it I just want that Sybil to come talk to me and say, you know, yeah. hey, that that was pretty cool. Um, but you can't do that until you you yourself feel comfortable with it yourself. So there's there's definitely that dichotomy or that that build up and that tension. You know that. So this you just triggered a thought for me. It goes back to the panel uh, where she says, "No, but I'll try." <clears throat> Some of the most validating feedback I get on art, mine or others, is it's not my thing, but I can tell it's really awesome. Like that's Love such that. a great thing to hear, right? That, yeah. Um, yeah, it's and it's not the same as an objective observe observation. It's just more like um, I get it. I'm you know, and I'm I'm gonna be honest. It's not the thing I'm gonna read at night, but yeah, like I totally get that this is supposed to be here. I think that's so great as far as feedback goes because it is honesty, not cruelty, mm -hmm. that you are capable of sharing. If you are the person giving feedback, you are capable of sharing openly that this does not speak specifically to my experience. Uh, this is not something that I would seek out. However, I recognize the 
inherent effort, the skill, the talent, the potential for this to connect with people who are not me. Mm-hmm. Of course, you know, anyone listening to this right now, uh, hot tip, if you don't know what to say, that's a great thing to say when somebody <laughs> says, can you take a look at my work? But, you know, when, when I, I think most creators, most artists really can understand the, the, the timber of a person's voice and whether or not it is genuine mm-hmm. and you are hearing their authentic response and that feels like such a a nice neutral response because you're not receiving um effusive praise from someone who knows you want to hear it um you're you're hitting a different target mm-hmm. and and you know who doesn't want that that honesty not cruelty um yeah. speaking of cruelty you know one thing that i did not uh, uh, share about the conclusion of this issue for all of its lovely catharsis and human connection, but a, a bizarre bit of violence in which the way in which Brian understands Sybil cares is that <laughs> Sybil takes a, a punch from the man thing. Um, here's, the, here's the crux of it. Here's the conflict, Anne. When we do this show, there's like two paths to take. One, what is to comment on the absurdity and this character is so ridiculous and it's, it's so easy and ripe to make jokes. And two, is to see the author, Steve Gerber, whom I see so much autobiographical content of his life, of his concerns, of his sorrows and, and efforts in this specific issue. Mm. Um, and to take it more seriously and to treat it critically and it's figuring out how to choose your path for mm-hmm. you know, the conversation, right? Do we make light of this because it's so funny or do we uh, uh, treat this as a higher form of art, which so rarely comics and certainly comics like this one receive that kind of critical analysis. Part of the reason why I, I wanted you to be on the show is because I think you more than most have perfected the tightrope act between doing these things mm-hmm. of, of critical depth and uh, lowbrow humor. And I say this in, in utter praise. My favorite creators are people who have figured out how to do this. And, and you are in that Mount Rushmore. Wow. And, and I wanted to know, you know, your take, having no table setting, no context, that moment of violence of, uh, of him smacking someone and then someone else coming to this notion like, oh, wow, you really do care for me because you'll <laughs> receive it. How, how, how does that land for you? Where is that coming in as the conclusion to this bizarre story? I, I don't know if I want to go down this rabbit hole, but, you know, um, I would hate for an allegory to be interpreted as a political statement necessarily. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I didn't pass it off, but I was sort of like, Yep, the seventies. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, this is a this is a literal demonstration of strength mm-hmm. on both sides. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, that sort of um, the protector, right? That's everybody's fantasy that you'll be protected. Mm-hmm. And so um, that's as that's about as far as I went into it because, you know, I, I just anecdotally want to share when I produce and represent Gengar Tagami's work, for example, it's just, there's so much violence in it mm-hmm. that it's like, it's so much violence. And uh, I can't tell you the number of times I've had interviews or talked about the work and um, there's a sort of like, well, this isn't like one of those awful tentacle porn comics. I'm like, 
no, it's much worse. <laughs> it's actually much, much worse. <laughs> it comes at the hands of other humans. Yeah. It, it's I more mean, visceral. Yeah. Th- there's like arms and legs getting cut off. Mm-hmm. And um, which reminds me of one of my favorite anecdotes is he told me uh, in the 90s, understandably, gay magazines were like, we're going to want to run an ad or a disclaimer. Like in, in real life, one should always have protected sex but you will see depictions of unprotected sex in this in this work and he's like yeah well then in real life uh you shouldn't shit all over a non-consenting sex partner <laughs> <laughs> i mean t- you know, hard to argue hard yeah, to argue yeah he's like <laughs> you probably shouldn't cut people's limbs off if they aren't down yeah, with it too yeah. Not cool. <laughs> Maybe don't kidnap your boss and feed him nothing but, you know, dog food. Um, but, you know, so. But you have this experience of the the uh, the blurry line between. Yeah. You know, Tagame's work is is known to be uh, very extreme, very violent, very brutal and very sincere, very mm-hmm. earnest, very loving and authentic. How do you negotiate the line between those things, given that violence is a part of the language mm-hmm. of the medium? I think something that's really important to remember is that this is about desire and not about violence. So it's about, uh, it's it's really more of a litmus test on the reader is what is this doing for you? Mm-hmm. And um, I think importantly, a lot of his 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 readership is not um, homogenous. It's it's men, it's women, it's um, people in the BDSM community mostly, mm-hmm. but not necessarily a lot of people who just appreciate the aesthetics. Mm-hmm. Other people who simply want to see something as grotesque as possible. But what is he he likes to challenge readers with a question like, well, why do you keep reading it? Like that's mm-hmm. the real question. And, um, you know, that's, I think that's really super compelling. I have colleagues who would say like their, their interests are in the opposite kind of literature. Um, how, how much serenity can you tolerate? Right. Like, Mm -hmm. is it possible you can read a 600 page, you know, uh, novel about nothing? Cause there's a lot of that. Yeah. Yeah. A little conflict. Can you inject while still keeping a reader's attention? Yeah. I mean, a really good a person whose opinion I respect highly, Brad Johnson out um, in Berkeley, who runs a bookstore who constantly says like, I hate plots. Like I don't want to read anything <laughs> with a plot. Um, mm-hmm. And I didn't know what he meant until he showed the kinds of books he meant. And I started reading. I was like, wow, uh, I'm glad you like this. <laughs> I'm glad somebody likes this. This isn't for me, but I can tell it's great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm definitely the exact opposite. So it's I'm I'm curious as as well as Tagame about like what is making people tick, you know? Mm. Um and I like finding out when the thing that makes you tick is maybe just a little ambient noise or really intense hentai, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, I, you know, I as you were talking about uh, uh, Tagame's uh, thoughts on his own art form and, and the way that people receive it, 
that question, what is it that makes you keep reading? Well, I thought of uh, my experience with it, a different manga creator, Go Nagai. Yeah. Um, I love Devil Man, and I am... I'm a real softy, you know, I like as far as uh, the, the contents of this comic, I'm a sad boy. I'm, I'm very much <laughs> Brian Lazarus. I'm very much Steve Gerber. Uh, and I have found I don't know how to describe it other than feeling like a, a like a pubescent moment where you discover that you like this extreme stuff mm-hmm. and it's hard to reconcile why that is. Mm-hmm. And I find that, you know, it, your phrasing and I think is so masterful because you're talking about this is this is about desire um, and yeah. what kind of desire fantasy desire uh, emotional desire lizard brain desire mm-hmm. not desire to mimic not desire to right. do not desire right. to, to experience exactly but yeah. doesn't it feel safer on the page to scratch that itch oh right? completely yeah uh, for so many people too I think just I always want to remind everybody too it's all context so mm-hmm. like I think another thing is like if he became a filmmaker, I I would have very different opinions because mm. that would then be really threatening. Then the, then it would really question this relationship between like reality and desire, mm. right? It's like, mm-hmm. you know, to be cliche, it would hit way too close to home to see live actors or, sure. you know, yeah. performers doing this. And frankly, it's usually pretty bad when they try sure. uh, to fake it or whatever and um so i because i know there's this touchy gray zone slash danger zone of where the work becomes credited with like problematic you know mra behavior or like Mm -hmm. whatever the bad guys right and i think that's because their contexts have been totally blown up and exploited by other bad players but um if we continue to recognize that there's that we're talking about desire as the thing that we can't meet, but want to, but want to satisfy, Mm -hmm. you know, I think that's, that's when religion can be profound. That's when sex can be profound. That's Mm -hmm. when relationships can be profound. Do you think it has to do with some level uh, or some ability in the audience to have a level of abstraction towards what's actually going on? literally and what we are looking for from a sort of psychological itch perspective right so i think the same thing goes on from you know the the tired old argument of violence in video games leading to violent behavior in children right we have to have some level of trust or respect in the audience that what we are saying and doing is not um you know a a recommendation by any means and Mm -hmm. really it's about something much more than uh, what your parent is seeing over their shoulder when they take a look and you're playing Call of Duty. You know, it's there's right. there's so much more going on than at first face value, and and to allow these types of arts to exist and to flourish is to respect uh, the human capability of abstraction and context. Yeah, totally. And in most cases, that content is a byproduct of somebody else's desires or traumas right so you know um i find myself frequently being the apologist for people that are being called into question for things like this and it's not because i want to excuse bad behavior it's just like well let's just remember there's still a human being making this stuff you Mm -hmm. know so what's going on in their mind um that's a human being who may or may not be you know 
uh, convicted of the crime of doing the thing that they're depicting. Right. Right. Well, (laughs) and then that's the other thing. Yeah, exactly. Um, Oh God. And I think artists unfortunately frequently get a pass because it's supposedly in the name of art, but it's Mm -hmm. like, you know, and in those situations, I'm like, I wish more people told him to stop. (laughs) It's like, (laughs) you know, um, but usually by the time a person is, is being indicted or, you know, uh, ostracized, it's like they had too much power to begin with. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not criminalizing the unsuccessful right. person. The super <laughs> niche artist that's has like 10, you know, viewer, uh, you know, patrons uh, yeah. that is making this hyper specific, uh, you know, art for some people who only, you know, that only segment of society would even care about or or consume. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Those, people, those people are not on blast typically no totally so i i think if anything we should mitigate power and status like take a t- you know just take the air out of those tires not around creativity and like personal expression mm. yeah yeah i i would completely agree with you and i think uh the the key element of this conversation is is context yeah uh, and uh the uh pursuit of understanding um, understanding where it comes from, who made it, why the the context of it all in in every aspect is part of the way that you can understand what the art means and how people receive it. Um, you know, speaking of what the art means, you know, we have a segment on the show where we just like to take a look at something that spoke to us directly in the form of a single panel or page. Was there an excerpt in this comic, any one individual panel or segment? that spoke to either of you, uh, and was there something that stood out in your mind? Um, hold on. I, I'm looking at, I'm going to look at. Yeah, browse through them and see if there was anything that was specifically arresting. Uh, I think the, um, you know, that the music started, you know, I used to love music, and then it, I used to say that anybody that didn't like music was dead. Was so yeah. what a Great funny line. yeah, and then oh yes, I like music very much. I'm a dancer, this is Sybil, and um, one day I came home from work, put Rubber Soul on the stereo. You know that old Beatles album, that that it sounded like noise to me, ugly, ugly, ugly noise. That's when I knew I was dying. And it's funny because like, you know, um, it's it's. I, I don't like the Beatles, so I thought that was funny anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I read that, and, you know, of course, the reference would have meant something very different in 74. That's right, exactly. Pretty yeah. universal. At the, at the yeah. height of their popularity, and people were like, man, if you could say this about the Beatles, then yeah. this guy must be crazy. I don't think there's any analog today that would stand the same way. Well, that's where my head went next. Was well, sort Imagine of... he was saying this about Animal Collective. <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, Sybil says, Brian, it was noise. It's literally just noise. <laughs> Noise. <laughs> All right, I'm, I'm personally offended now, but continue. <laughs> and then they stopped touring. <laughs> no, but like, um, you know, so a, a part of the stuff that I do that I talk a lot less about is music. <clears throat> and I, most of the musicians I respect say that they hate hearing when people say they love music. That's like a red flag. If somebody says, I love music (laughs) and I know exactly what they mean. It's like, yeah, actually it's kind of true. Like 
It's the live, laugh, love of exactly. saying something about It's empty. Your it's interest. vacuous. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Or just, you know, I like somebody with a sense of humor. It just sounds weird, right? Yeah. It's like... It's so broad, it basically doesn't mean anything. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, um, but it's an observation I've heard several times. And so that whole, that whole bottom third of that page was so good. Um, but I like on the next panel, he was like, uh, you know, and then suddenly everything was noise and everything was ugly, um, which I thought was actually his way of saying like, and then I started to like it. I, you know, I like the noise and I like the ugly. I thought that's what was sort of, I was reading between the lines. And, um, but just again, thinking about the Beatles and who the equivalent would have been and really getting into that really resonated. But that first panel when he's like, and then I, you know, I used to love music and um, yeah. That How about fun. you, Sean? Uh, was there, was there a panel specifically that stood out? You know, uh, out of, out of the choices that I had in my mind, the top two, it seems like we've already talked about, but I can give my take a little bit. So my first one definitely was going to be, um, Brian's exchange with Sybil and, uh, having that discussion of, no, I don't understand how you're feeling, but I care. And, you know, you can talk to me. I thought that was really profound. I related to that on a deep level. Um, I think it's safe to say overall, this issue, if not my favorite, it might be my top two tied for top favorite Mm. of all the man thing issues we've read so far, at least on the podcast, I I would say this and night of the laughing dead, uh, kind of for similar reasons, kind of similar vibes. It's just like, I think the more the man thing is an abstract idea or or uh, sort of avenue to a, a more human story, and the less he is a uh, superhero with a capital S, the more I relate and enjoy the issue. Um, so that that moment I felt was really touching, uh, really you know drew me in and really made me care about the characters and and what uh, Gerber himself was was you know, either going through or at least trying to describe. Um, the other one was going to be ex- exactly what Anne just went through, but I, I think I have a little bit of a different interpretation or take on how it affected me when I first read it. Um, so that starting with that panel, um, you know, I used to say that anybody that didn't like music was dead. <laughs> when I first read that part, immediately flashbacks to, you know, college age, me and all my friends, and we thought we were you know, we may have even been those people and that were like, oh, yeah, I love music. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it, it immediately gave me like this visceral cringe uh, inside. I'm like, oh, man, this guy sucks. <laughs> I want to I really want to make some merch for this podcast. And it'll say like, uh, uh, I listen to Man Thing Minute and I love music. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> But just like be coming up to a stranger, like he's he's trying to talk to this girl and be like this brooding guy. I used to say that anybody that didn't like music was dead. Yeah. Like, all right. Get over yourself, buddy. First of all. Uh, but then yeah. after that, I kind of had a turn because, you know, like you said, they he he starts like actually going into to me seemed like more of his inner monologue, his inner psychology. The idea that, you know, even the music he used to enjoy, he could no longer gain any joy from and then that sort of so to me that interpretation of okay the Beatles didn't sound good anymore and then everything started to sound like noise instead of uh, so so you took it as a a sort of a more optimistic I sort of enjoyed the noise or 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 found my place within the noise to me I I feel like I personally had uh, a, a sort of connection with the idea of losing 
the ability to enjoy things I once loved. And then mm. sort of everything mm. starting to feel noise was more um, apathy or, or lack mm. of emotion. And, I know I've and, been feeling that very particular apathy over the past couple of years, uh, COVID and quarantine absolutely. and spending a lot of time yeah. isolated and, and frankly, you know, the context and circumstances of the world and what's important and what becomes less important has been something that has made it hard for me to enjoy superheroes or comic books and do be as uh, specific as possible. You know, I started making Man-Thing Minute because I needed ways to kill time and talk to folks. And then I needed to put it down because I'm like, man, too much shit, too mm-hmm. much yeah. noise. It's all noise. Mm-hmm. And, and my hope, my optimism, I suppose, is that... Uh, that f- those frequencies change; they come and go, and maybe what you loved will become noise, but you will find a way to uh, tune back in, so to speak. Mm. Definitely, and even from like a, a sort of more clinical perspective of of psychology, you know, the idea of anhedonia or or the mm. inability to feel joy or feel um, satisfaction from things you once loved. Um, I've definitely gone through bouts of my life with that, and I thought this was a a very visceral, beautiful depiction of that of that sensation. So uh, it went some from sort of like this kind of fuck boy guy talking about how he's so cool for liking music yeah. into this really very real uh, picture of mental health that I, I definitely related to. Mm. I, you know, I'm 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 happy to hear that there's um, flexibility in the, in the way that you're interpreting these things because I I had a very similar responses where I was looking at Brian Lazarus's words, the song "Cry," and feeling pang of embarrassment that <laughs> oh I have written this, oh I have said these things, <laughs> I have felt this way, or told people that I profess to feel this way. Mm-hmm. Um, and even though I had that embarrassment, it's like finding an old blog or a live journal and, yeah. and stumbling on it and it's painful and seeing yourself and versions of yourself that you no longer are and having to reconcile that you were that person, you did say those things, you feel this way now about that way. And then having more time to soak in it and discovering that that Part of you is still there. It's mm-hmm. not meaningless. That poem that I had to write about corn because <laughs> I am slash was, <laughs> that was a moment and it was adolescence and it was juvenile and it was inexperienced, but it's still there. It, it you know, uh, matter cannot be created nor destroyed. And, and that means it exists somewhere and maybe it's not meaningful or valuable to me now. Mm but I'm glad to have met it again or confronted it again. So I've had flexibility in my interpretation of a lot of this comic. Uh, you know, if I had to choose a specific favorite panel, I, I would choose a series. But uh, for me, the man thing is always depicted as being outside a window or a door frame. And mm-hmm. as someone who reads a lot of these comics, I, this is how I see the character used in the best sense. It is someone who is observing, who is clearly on the other side of a barrier, cannot connect physically, emotionally, uh, in in really any respect. And I think uh, Buscema and uh, um, Klaus Janssen or or Janssen uh, do just a terrific job of illustrating that as simply as possible. I also really like his poise. He's got like a almost a gorilla 
aspect to him where his his arms are long and and hang down. He lumbers in a very specific way. And I always like when the man thing is depicted as more monster than man. So that's mm. something that I, I appreciate deeply about this issue. I think we have done the best we can to summarize everything. And I think we have really already navigated and negotiated the commonalities and, and uh, resonance between each of us and you, Anne, and the comic itself. Um, so the, the specific question that I'll ask you, the segment that I always I, I refer to as stepping into the nexus. The man thing is the, the protector of the nexus of all realities, which means all realities uh, are connected in this one spot in the Florida Everglades, and the man thing <laughs> is at, at the center of it all. So I want to connect worlds in the way that the nexus does. Um, with a specific question to you, and you are an artist. You are someone who has uh, a lot of daily responsibilities to people who are not artists. Um, what is your song cry of the living dead man? I happen to know that you have written a novel. It is as yet unpublished. Mm-hmm. What is your song cry of the living dead man, the thing that you absolutely must create uh, for fear that you lose it? Oh, man. Woof. That's a tough uh, one. <laughs> wow. Whew. Um, but you thought you were just going to do a casual little silly podcast about a monster. <laughs> <laughs> and ask you some existential questions. At the end of the I need the man thing. I need the man thing to mean something. And I, it, you yeah. Um, I really connected with all of the characters and, um, you know, not to psychobabble, but in the dream, every character is you, right? Your brain comes up with all of it. So in the same way as an artist, every interpretation I have of all of my relationships is entirely mine. And I think my song cry is, uh, to somehow create the manifestation of desire that everybody can connect with that also satisfies me directly physically actually so it is i'm i'm kind of obsessed with desire the idea of desire and for me that's sometimes a specific like i desire a, a person or i desire a thing and transactional relationships are actually quite easy and also um not super satisfying, but um, those those unconditional relationships or the the expression. I guess. I mean, I I have a blog that's called Love Letters, and mm-hmm. I think just the the love song is a love letter. Um, it's something I hope can be understood as just the primacy of wanting, and that that can be honored without you know um in in a good way because i think Mm. wanting and desire sometimes for the more sort of awakened person considered like barriers to nirvana or something Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. actually it is the thing that drives me and it feels good so how do i continue to honor my desire um because, yeah, again, somehow my my crisis is that the transaction sort of turns the switch off. Mm-hmm. So it's like, how do I get to everything around it without, you know, or, or how do I have a transaction and still have desire? Like, mm-hmm. how do I keep yeah. wanting after I get, you know? Because I, there's I, an aspect. Really... Go ahead, Sean. 
I was just going to say there's an aspect of desire. It sounds like you're saying, you know, my interpretation of that, tell me if I'm wrong, but there's getting the thing which has its own joy, but then the very act of desire or wanting, there's also something in that that should be valued. Yeah. Um, the sort of prequel to actually attaining the thing and and maybe how do you maintain the the honoring of that portion uh, of the transaction while also eventually obtaining the thing. Yeah, because wanting creates so many other problematic feelings. So how do you just have the wanting without it turning <laughs> into envy when somebody else gets it or right. without it turning into anger when you lose it? So, yeah. Healthy, sustainable desire. Yes. I I like your take in that it I, I don't know if I would say it is in opposition to that notion of of nirvana um you know you, you don't have any more desires anymore you are not a wanting person um, but I I think I I empathize with your take more so because what is life if not to want uh mm. you know you want to survive you want to eat you want uh, you have skin hunger, you have, you want to be felt or heard or touched. And, uh, if you don't have those things, then are you living? Are you yeah. alive at mm-hmm. all? You know, what, it, what is life if not a series of pursuits? And uh, I, I really like this, this idea of trying to have those things in a healthy way mm-hmm. without the feeling of emptiness when it is transacted, as you right. said. Yeah, or right. without it taking over your life uh, right. and being obsessive, perhaps. Exactly. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. I mean, a person who doesn't want anything is kind of a dickhead, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I would say <laughs> in simplest terms, yeah. You know, if of somebody who doesn't want anything, if anything, can you trust someone who says that? Mm. Do they even like music? Do they even... <laughs> I'm sorry, do you even like music? (laughs) Well, if you want to spend more time with Anne Ishii, and I think uh, if you've listened to this episode, then you do, then you can find uh, her blog, her newsletter through Substack. It's ill-iterate.com. That's illiterate. Love Letter Day X. Um, And it's a great Substack. I, I love your writing in my inbox. I think it's fantastic. I chose this specific comic for you as a writer, and I thought we were going to have a conversation about negotiating art versus commerce uh, mm. and and identities, and we went in a very different, mm. really lovely direction, and I'm so glad we did. Uh, I always ask, after reading this first issue of Man-Thing in, in your life, would you ever read another Man-Thing comic again? Absolutely. I need to know how Sybil was kidnapped. Uh, <laughs> That's how they get you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't need the next episode. I need the prequel. But yes, absolutely. Yeah, we can do that. We can definitely satisfy that. Do you have anything that you are working on right now that you want to share with the world? Uh, something you want to plug? Uh, just Asian Arts Initiative. We have lots of cool programming here. So please, please check out the calendar. Uh Curating programming here is as much my creative work as anything else right now. So definitely check that out. That's great. Thank you. I uh, you your uh your time, like I mentioned early on, uh you you are highly sought after. And uh, <laughs> and I, I really appreciate you spending time with us on the show. This was this is a really fun hour of breaking down the 
and, and critically analyzing the value <laughs> and depth of this comic, which when I read when I was a little kid, you know, I couldn't grok this. I had no experience mm. that that resembled this at all. And so mm. I thought when I was younger that this was one of the shittier, more <laughs> esoteric <laughs> comics. I'm like, this means nothing. Just punch a guy for <laughs> Christ's sake. Nothing even happened. <laughs> <laughs> right. It says a lot that you came back to it, though. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, you know, I, I hope... Uh, Things that we have written off when we were younger, we have the opportunity to confront again and see if there's anything there or there. Mm. Uh, so uh, I appreciate you doing that with us. Thank you. No, thank you. Anything for you, Thing, Adam Thing, and wow. Sean Thing. <laughs> wow. Was, Drove it home at the end there. Yeah. That was man excellent. That was so poetic <laughs> that I feel bad that I, I have a closing segment, which is, uh, uh, you know, every week I ask people to rewrite the Man-Thing's motto, which is whatever knows fear burns at the touch of the Man-Thing. I, I poll folks, replace the word of fear. Give me uh, a rhyming word in most cases so we can write our own outro. And this week's outro comes from Fraser Rice on Twitter, and he writes, whatever knows Chanticleer. Burns at the touch of the man thing. Chanticleer. That's a, you know what Chanticleer is? Uh, I know it to be the main character from the movie Rockadoodle. Oh. Uh, the rooster. There's a beautiful pleasure garden. That's literally what it's Ooh. called uh, in Wayne, just, you know, off the main line. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Check it out. It's really beautiful. Uh, I mean, I'm happy to hear that. I'm happy to hear that it represents more than the rooster that was raised by <laughs> Glenn Campbell <laughs> in the Don Bluth movie, <laughs> Rock-a-Doodle. Good, great it. stuff. So Chanticleer, uh, Fraser Rice, thank you. Um, I, I would love to know if you listen to this podcast, did you mean the Pleasure Garden or the, <laughs> the cartoon rooster? Is the Very real question. Yeah. That's the real question. Get back to us. (laughs) Yeah, hit me up and let me know. Uh, And thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of Man Thing Minute. And we will see you next time. 